The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, now Joseph is weak messages until we get to the fall. A lot of vacation schedules keeps people coming and going and still continue to pray for many who are gone today, but um, we'll start a series in the fall. But as I got to my office early this mo- uh, Monday morning and began to take a look at the direction I was heading, I kind of sat back in the chair and I began to think about <clears throat> what, we were, what I was going to do. And the Lord clearly led me. I didn't speak audible to me. I don't want to be accused of that. But it became very clear that, you know, for 26 weeks, you've been intertwining Romans 8.28. Why not preach on what Romans, 28, Romans 8.28 means and who it's for and who it's not for? So that's where we're headed this morning. And let me begin by asking you a question. Do you want God's good or your good? Can the the two be the same? Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, it's difficult trying to distinguish all of this. We often use the phrase, if it be God's will. What is God's will? And so, a lot of times we go through our lives kind of in this this back and forth question, is this what God wants? Is this what He doesn't want? Uh, Paul wrote just two verses earlier in Romans 8, 26, that we don't know what to pray for as we should. Then in Romans 8, 28, he tells us all things work together for good. We know this. So we don't know. We know. We don't know. What, what, what is the idea here? Uh, the first knowing talks about the details of our lives. Sometimes we're mesmerized, confused about them. But then the second knowing concerns the fact of God's great plan itself. Paul tells us that we do know this. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that when you die, your spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. And that there's a day coming when he will come back and resurrect these bodies, glorify them, and we will be reigning with him forever. We got that part. But that's out there. Where we struggle is today, here and now. But see, Paul teaches quite simply, if God has called us according to his purpose, he must have both a purpose and a place for us in that plan. And moreover, we know that everything will obviously work together for the good in the achievement of that purpose. This is tremendous news. This verse has been a comfort and healing for Christians through the ages. However, it comes with some qualifications. 
and now I can hear you. Ah, I knew there was a catch. I knew there was something to this. Well, let's take a look at several of these built-in qualifications, and maybe we can call them boundaries. Number one, it's for Christians only. The first boundary is defined by a question, to whom does this promise apply? And obviously, it does not apply to everyone, for Paul's statement says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So the verse is talking about Christians. Those who have truly believed in the finished work of Christ have given their lives over to him completely in obedience. So to read Romans 8.28, and to really understand where this is going, we need to read it with Romans 8.29 and 30. So he begins, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now he says he's the firstborn among many brothers. Like Joseph, Jesus came to earth as our big brother. And when he defeated the grave and, and, and triumphed over death, all who trust him have the same victory. And so he's the first in a line of many brothers. And, and so this is not a promise that all things work together for good to all people. Romans 8.28 is not a pie-in-the-sky plan for the ages. Clearly, Joseph was a man with a predetermined calling, and we saw how he was clearly conformed to the image of Christ. Um, so first, what, this, what does this tell us? It is a call to all of us to evaluate our lives. What will it take to conform us to the image of Christ? Is Jesus Christ at the center of my goals, my aspirations, the will of my heart? It is a call to true salvation that I fear many churchgoers have not fully grasped. And I think we'll understand this better as we look at number two. To be like Christ. The second boundary to our text comes from another question. What does good mean? What does he mean by the word good? That's an important question to ask because if good means rich, as some would like it to mean, then the text is not true because many Christians are poor. The same is true if God means healthy because not all believers have good health. Similarly, good cannot mean success or admired or even happy in the world's sense. Since God asks many Christians to endure failure, scorn, disease, and personal defeat. So what does good mean then? If it does not mean rich 
or healthy or successful or admired or even happy? Well, the answer is clearly in verse 29. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is the good. To be conformed to the likeness of his son. In other words, to be made like Jesus. It's the very reason we were created in the first place. When God created Adam and Eve, he said it was good. And all was wonderful until sin entered and that good was now severed. So when God instituted a plan and Christ came and died on the cross to make a way for us to escape, when we come to him in full surrender, turning our lives over to him, the good is now reinstated. And our focus is, again, to be like Christ. It is literally the meaning of life. And you see, we gauge good around our depraved human thinking. But God gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us into all His truth, that we might be like Him. So it's important for us as we begin to focus through what Romans 8.28 is to understand that really all things work together for good for those who are conformed to the image of Christ. For those who live under the leadership and the guidance of Christ, who give their lives to live for Him. And He uses these things in a very clear way. We are to mirror Jesus Christ in our lives. Three, a good use of bad things. This leads us to a third boundary for, from this text, and it also comes with another question. Are the things used in our lives by God for His good end necessarily good in themselves? or only in their effect? Well, the answer, of course, is the latter. In other words, the text does not teach that sickness, suffering, persecution, grief, or any other such things in itself is good. On the contrary, these things are evil. Hatred is not love. Death is not life. Grief is not joy. The world is filled with evil. But what the text teaches, and this is critical... It is that God uses these things to affect his own good ends for his people, as we saw so graphically in the life of Joseph. What God brings out of evil and the good, as we saw, is our conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. And this was the overwhelming truth that we saw in Joseph every single week. So you see, salvation is not just a position of security. It is a transformation to the character of Jesus Christ. And that is why we radically change when we begin to understand who he is. Four, knowing rather than feeling. The fourth and final boundary for the meaning of this text comes in the answer to still another question. What is our relationship to what God is doing in these circumstances? Well, the answer Paul gives is that we know. He does not say that we feel all things are good. 
often we do not feel that God is doing any good at all. In fact, we feel the exact opposite. We often feel like we're being ground down, that things are tough, and that God may not even be there the way we feel. And it's not even that we see the good. Most of the time, we do not perceive the good things God is doing or how he might be bringing good out of evil. The text simply says, we know. Why do we know? Because he said so. And when you're being conformed to the image of Christ, you know and believe and trust in everything that he says. Paul knew this quite well. He had been persecuted, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. He had been attacked and constantly slandered by the Gentiles of whom he ministered and to his own pe- from his own people as well. And Paul did not go around saying how wonderful the world was or how pleasant his missionary journeys were. In fact, he said quite the contrary. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 and 9, he said, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. But Paul came through the things that pressed him down and perplexed him precisely because he knew that God was in it. And because of his faith in Christ, he could trust him completely. All Paul needed to know was that he was glorifying Christ wherever he was. How did Paul know it? Well, He knew it because God had told him. And now Paul is sharing it with you and I so that you and I can know completely what's going on. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That is incredible confidence. That is tremendous peace when you have no idea where it's going. That's a tremendous joy that we have. Well, we've been looking at the qualifications of this text, the boundaries. But how about things outside the boundaries? Surely there are things in lives that, in our lives that seem to come outside of these things. And so we're going to look at the parts outside of the boundaries. And it's the term all things. This tells us that in all that we have ever done in the past, All that is happening to us now and all things that will happen in the future. All these things are being put together for our good. It reminded me when I was a child, somewhere between the age of 5 and 10. I knew that's the age I was in because I knew where I was living when this happened to me. But for some reason, when I would get into trouble, which was frequently, I began to have a sense of right and wrong. And I can remember going and hiding and praying and asking God to forgive me for what I had done. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't know the gospel. I wouldn't be saved till I was 17. But the trouble, if you will, God was already using the events to draw me on a path that would later result in my salvation. What's more, when we begin to look at this closely, we see that they are used not only for our good, 
but for the good of all those around us. Let me give you three examples of what I'm talking about. There are many, many more, but let me just take three. And the first one I got to mention is obviously Joseph, because he's so fresh in our minds right now. We saw clearly how God controlled circumstances apart from God's purposes, most of which was hidden from Joseph for a very long time. No one would suspect that God was doing anything good in Joseph at all. One bad thing after another, and surely I won't mention them because we're all experts now, but the work God did in Joseph benefited not only Joseph, it benefited the entire nation of Egypt and all the surrounding areas and his family. And God worked all that to put together a plan that you and I are still benefiting from today. What of Joseph or Job? From the world's point of view, Job may be one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture. Job was a mature and upright man, one who feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and his wealth consisted of 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. He had many servants, and then suddenly, without warning, in a single day, it was gone. Raiders carried off the donkeys and the oxen. Lightning killed the sheep. Chaldean bandits stole the camels and killed the servants. And then finally, a building collapsed, wiping out his children. Satan, who is behind the whole thing, stood back expecting Job to rise up and curse God. And what did Job do? He fell on his face and worshipped. Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Talk about a blow to Satan's plan. The evidence, the events of Job's life affected all around him, and it still affects us today because the testimony Job maintained through all of this is an evidence of a radical changed thought process, and his life was completely focused on God. What a change. What an amazing change. All things work together for the good. The third example is Peter. Peter sinned in his pride, telling Jesus, oh, they all might be offended, but no, not me, not Peter. And then he too sinned in his weakness doing precisely what he had told Jesus he wouldn't do. Peter denied the Lord three times before the night was over. What was the outcome? Jesus turned even these bad things to good. He interceded for Peter. He prayed for Peter that when he came through, he'd be strong. You know, let's, let's look at these passages because I think this is, this is critical for us. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And I like to look at these passages because I guess I identify with Peter more than anybody. Peter was a very egotistical 
brash individual. And in Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Now, I think it's fascinating because (laughs) Peter is living like the old Peter. He's trusting in himself. He's not trusting in the God who's standing right before him, telling him these things. So Jesus addresses him like the old man. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you as wheat. Satan demanded to have him. Doesn't that sound like Job? When Satan would go into the presence of God and argue that if he could get his hands on any one of his believers, they would curse him. And Jesus said, have you considered Job? Well, now Jesus is telling Peter, hey, Satan has desired to have you. And guess what, Peter? I'm going to let him. You ever feel like you're being sifted? Could God be sifting, allowing the sifting process to do something amazing in your life? He's desired to have you that might sift you as weak. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. So here he is, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the creator and sustainer of the universe, standing before Peter saying, look, you're going to be sifted. I've approved it. But you're coming through. You're coming through. And when you come through, I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers, Peter. But do you see what's going on in Peter's mind? Self, self, no. I will not fail you. I'm stronger than that. And he's not listening to what Jesus is telling him. Jesus has said, Peter, you're coming through. Is Jesus telling you you're coming through? Because if he's allowed you to be sifted, I guarantee you, you are coming through. And when you come through, be an example. Let me use you to touch everybody around you. (laughs) But Peter, he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. (laughs) Jesus said, oh, Peter... The rooster will not crow this day until you have denied me three times. Go back to Mark chapter 14. Mark writes the same experience, but he puts a a unique twist on it that gives us a little more insight onto what's going on. Beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You all will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So, look guys, this is what's going down. We're going out. Isaiah has already said it. You know it. I am going to be smiting. And you're all going to scatter like a bunch of scared sheep. I'm not just telling you. It's biblical. You know it. It's written. And then he goes on, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So here again is Jesus, son of man. I'm going to be killed, but I am rising again. Now, if these disciples were really listening to what God is saying, they'd be going, "Woo, 
Wow, I can't wait to see this. Wait till people get a load of this. Man, I'm going to be there. I'm not missing a thing. Hallelujah. You go, Jesus. We're with you. But they're not listening. It's all about me. It's what I want. I don't want this to happen. I want to be in control. I want the life my way. I'm doing things my way. And Jesus, no. I'm not going to deny you. I, I, I just told you. You're going to. I'm going to be raised. And you're not even listening. But Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, emphatically is a very nice benign word. The King James says vehemently. The Greek says cursing and swearing. You know what Peter said? There is no blankety blank, blank, blank way that I am going to turn on you. And if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So here's what we have. We have a man who's so egotistical. He's so caught up in his own way. He's looking at things his own way. He is not even being told by the Son of Man that he is anything less. And you know what? Even if I have to die with you, I'm not going to do it. And before the night is out, he can't even admit to a 14-year-old maiden that he knows Christ. But here's the bad part. The last part of the verse says, and they all said the same. You know what happened here? Peter's so cocky. He's such an incredible speaker. He has such an influence that when Peter says, I'm not going to deny you, they all said, yeah, we're with Peter. And the whole bunch of them fell because they had their eyes off God and on themselves. Is there ever a more clear example of human failure when we put ourselves ahead of Christ? All things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the purpose of Jesus was that they would be sifted to have the beautiful wheat separated from the chaff so they could be used by God and they clung to the chaff. And they fell flat on their faces. You talk about a great example of what's happening. So Peter has been there. He has suffered his own dumb mistakes, but he's come through. Why? Because Jesus said, I've prayed for you. And you know what it occurs to me? Today, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and what's he doing? He's interceding for you and me. The very same prayers that he said, I'm praying for you, Peter, that when you come through, strengthen your brother. And he's praying for you and I. Look, you're going to come through this. 
You're going to come through the confusion. You're going to come through all the things you don't understand. And when you come through, I want you to be a shouting, loud testimony to all around you of the power of God. And I want you to walk with me, and I want you to be an example of who I am. Because all things work together for good when you follow his plan. So Peter has learned his lesson. And so he writes in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, this is the same guy who before wouldn't listen to Jesus. And I love his words. Don't be surprised when these fiery trials come to test you, though something strange were happening. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his name. Now notice, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Verse 17 is a very sober warning. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. You know why Peter said that? Because he knew that within church buildings... There are a number of people who are living a lie. They've bought into an idea that makes them feel good, but there's been no transformation. Judgment begins right here. It begins with you, and it begins with me. Do I really understand what it means to be a Christian? And is my life surrendered to Christ? Is every decision I make his? Is he guiding me? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God, God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while he is doing good. He's praying for you. You're coming through. Are you surrendered to him? And yes, all things work for our good. What can happen to me that can defeat God's purpose? What can really happen to me that can defeat God's purpose? Can some thorn in the flesh? Paul had his thorn in the flesh. But God's grace was sufficient for him, and it was in his weakness that God was glorified. Sickness? Can sickness? Job had, uh, Job had sickness, but God glorified himself in Job's sickness, even 
maturing Job to the glory of God. You know, I, I, I know in the past I've shared with you my last moment's ex, uh, experience with my father-in-law when he passed, but I never told you what happened to lead up to that. You know, we were, uh, my father-in-law had had his annual physical, and his doctor said, you know, your, your prostate's enlarged, but it's normal with men your age. We'll check it next time. It was never next time. We were on vacation. We came back. They called us in the middle of the night, terrible pain, thinks it's a kidney stone. We take him to the hospital. Yeah, it looks like a kidney stone, but one of the doctors saw something he wasn't sure about, and of course, prostate cancer, and it had gotten out and everything. I got pretty mad. I kept it in. You know, here was a man who just affected my life amazingly and everybody around. And I'm like, what's the purpose? How is it this didn't have to happen? The doctor should have said, it's enlarged. Let's get you tested right away. Let's deal with it. It all could have been avoided. No. It wasn't checked again until it was too far gone. So that day, when they got him out of the bed, sat him in the chair, it was just the two of us. I was kind of angry. I really was. I have to confess that. I said, Dad, you have served the Lord your whole life. You've got virtually no time left. What's going through your mind? And his eyes opened up halfway, and he pointed at me. Romans 8, 28. All things work for good. It's the last thing I ever Nothing, nothing can separate us from the will of God. When you truly give him your life, death, how can death hurt me? 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. My physical death will only consummate God's plan for me. And as far as those who remain behind are concerned, God is working actively in their lives. You know, if I should die this afternoon, next Sunday, the gospel will be preached. Grace Fellowship Church will go on like always. Souls will be encouraged. Perhaps some will be saved. Because all things work together according to His purpose. Have you heard the call? Are you conformed to the image of Christ? Do you love God? Do you know? Then all things are working for your good. Make it your goal to be transformed into the image of Christ so he might be seen living through you and you can be used to change your world. Father, We thank you this morning for these amazing truths. The truths that all things work together for good, but they work together for the good for those who are surrendered to you, for those who have given everything over to you, to those who love you with all their hearts, not perfect, 
We're messy. We have mistakes. We, we, we constantly battle with that. All our characters in the Bible make that very clear. But Lord, what lives would we really have if we live them completely for you? What would you do with us when we're surrendered to your will? I pray, Lord, that you will do the work in the hearts of all of us that is your plan, planned before the foundation of the world, and that we might respond in absolute obedience. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless.